is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. How's it going, everybody? Welcome inside episode number five, numero cinco of the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. We are off and rolling with great guests, with great content, and we're very, very grateful for the really, really fortuitous start that we are off to. I'm Zach Wells in Cincinnati, alongside the man, the legend, Matt Swinney in Austin, Texas, the capital of the Lone Star State. And Matt, we've got a great, great program today. We do. We have Riley McGinnis on and uh that name will not be familiar to most of our listeners but uh she is the sixth ever female first captain at west point um former soccer player so we we originally heard about her as a soccer player and uh now she leads 4400 cadets at west point and she thank you so much to uh the army uh the military academy for helping to set that up for us she is an inspiring inspiring young woman and i tell you what Anybody who goes to West Point and graduates and serves with that kind of distinction is made of some really special wiring. It's patriotic, it is physically demanding, it's emotionally taxing, and to be able to really put country and service and people and and comrades and colleagues and, and civilians at the end of the day above yourself and have that as a vision for your life is I think really, really noble. And you guys are gonna really like hearing about Riley's journey to become first captain because, and I don't wanna spoil it, she really never had heard or, or really thought about West Point as an option for her after high school. It was a soccer recruiting event, like a clinic, where a coach from West Point noticed her. And she's like, oh, West Point. And then she went on a visit and then the rest is history. But we're gonna let Riley McGinnis talk about her journey and her service at the United States Military Academy. Matt, we've had some busy, busy times here in this world of ours. The National Basketball Association in the playoffs, in the wake of the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, took, I believe, four days away from the court before resuming the postseason. There were reports initially that the Lakers and the Clippers had voted to boycott the season altogether. And then there was a change of heart overnight. But my my question is, and certainly if you know me, if, if you know Matt, and you guys are just probably getting to know us from our podcast, all about equality, all about equal opportunity. I'm just curious what, by walking off the court, the end game is here, and what are the goals and the objectives for missing three or four days of basketball? Matt, do you have the same question? I do have that question. I um, I am very much the guy who thinks that if you have a big voice, a big following, a lot a of platform. people who listen, a platform, that's a better word for it, a platform, that you should use it. Um, I am never going to be the guy who says, shut up and dribble the basketball. I'm never going to be the shut up and be in movies. Um, I'm never going to be that guy. I think you should use that platform for whatever floats your boat. And I appreciate that, you know, maybe led by LeBron. I mean, he definitely was the big name who was coming out uh, this, this past week. 
Um, but I appreciate this using this big voice to go do something about this topic that they clearly are passionate about. What, what my concern is, I think is the same as yours, which is the, okay, well, what did you do during those four days? And what got fixed. Yeah. And, or, or look, we're not going to fix anything in four days. So right. I, no, it, fixed not, is the wrong word. What right. got, what got addressed? Yeah. And so, and so I guess, I guess where I, what I hope happens with this, um, and it didn't stop at the NBA, right? We saw major league baseball games get canceled. We saw, um, you know, it, it, MLS game or soccer games getting canceled. I mean, it, it was happening across the board. Um, I appreciate that the WNBA and NBA both came together on this. I thought that that was great. I, I guess my point is, is look, in my mind, you have two options as let's, let's just stay with the NBA as an NBA player. Could you have really used your voice and said, screw it. I'm out. I'm going to go spend my time focusing on these issues. I'm going to forego my salary and we're out. Like the NBA season is over as far as I'm concerned. I'd actually have a lot of respect for you if that's what you chose to do. And you went and spent your time doing that or continue to play. Look, if you needed a day off or whatever to process, I don't have a big issue with that. But again, like what I would love for them to have come out and said, and maybe somebody did and I just missed it. I would love for them to have come back and said, okay, over the last three days or four days or whatever it was, we all talked amongst ourselves as a team, as an organization, as the NBA as a whole, whatever it is, wherever that level was happening. And we have come up with you know, these issues, these bullet points that we really want to try to put our voice behind and try to make big, impactful change. Now, we're going to need to get through the rest of this season because we're busy focused on the playoffs. But the day that this season is over... And we're confined, by the way, for health reasons to suburban Orlando. Right, yeah, so we're stuck, kind of. But in the meantime... but, But in the meantime, we'll continue to have some conversations internally. And the day the season is over, we are going to work and we're going to work very, very hard. We're going to use the resources that we have in order to really help address these, these, these issues. And, you know, some period of time later, we're going to have metrics and we're going to try to look at them and we're going to try to make legitimate change. And I guess my problem is, is what I saw was a walkout, which great, you've got power in that and you've got leverage in that. I just didn't see what the walkout at the end of the day was going to try to accomplish. And I just want them, if they're going to do this, I want them to, to do it right. And I want them to say, these are the things that we really legitimately want to try to affect. These are the specific things that we're going to do going forward. And they're not going to have all of those answers in four days. I don't expect that, but I do want them to come out and say, this is kind of how we're going to engage and how we're going to mobilize. And by the way, LeBron is great. LeBron plus every other NBA player with him is even better. And so them as a group being able to come out and do that, I think is fantastic. I just want to see them put real actionable items on the table. If you're going to, if you're going to do that. Right. And Matt, I think NBA players, and it's not limited to professional basketball. I'm talking across professional sports have so much power here in terms of their recognizable voice, their platform, their resources. 
some of these men and women are financial empires unto themselves. So they really have the resources to really be able to go and pick and choose their philanthropy. Can you imagine, can you imagine once it's safe enough for us to do so, we're in a public health emergency, if NBA players would, would fan out into their communities and really make an investment in the outcome. And by that, I mean, follow the lead of Magic Johnson. And I'm an admitted Celtics fan. He broke my heart in the 80s. The, the skyhook in 87, or he called it the mini skyhook in, in game four over Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. It took me until I was 26 to admit that Magic Johnson was a good basketball player. And he was one of the best of all time, we know. But he really, in Los Angeles, went into communities that really needed a, a lift. And he built, what, movie theaters? Mm -hmm. He put people to work. He gave a place for community to, to get together through action on the big screen. He really went in and said, these are the people I believe in. These are the communities I believe in. And we're going to break ground and we're going to have a place that people can be really proud of. Can you imagine if some of these NBA players or NFL, Major League Baseball, whatever, went into police departments and said, I want to work with you. I want to go out on ride-alongs into the community. I want to go to community centers. I want to go to boys and girls clubs. I want to work with you to foster discussion between the police department and the communities that you police. Introduce yourselves. Be around. Be aware. Be visible. I think it would have an incredible impact in terms of addressing, I'm not saying fixing, addressing the barriers that exist in certain communities between the police and the community. If you had that kind of broker, if you will, at the table or in the neighborhoods. Yeah, I agree. And um, I, I grew up a Lakers fan. I got to go to Magic Johnson's basketball camp a couple of times. And uh, I got he was to, pretty good. I, I, I got to play a little one-on-one -on -one against Isaiah Thomas, which is uh, one of the fun little stories of my, of my life. But, um, you know, so I love Magic. I've always loved Magic. I think that he, I, but I think you're right. What he has done off the court, and by the way, by the way, he's damn near a billionaire if he's not there at this point. And from it's not doing, from his basketball salary. No, it's from doing exactly what you said. It's from investing in communities that most people have not wanted to invest in. And I will tell you, so I'm in the fashion business. You heard me talk about this before. Um, I will tell you one of the things I've seen is um, black fashion designers in the United States. They just simply don't have the same resources, access to mentorship, whatever the case may be. And we've seen that locally here in Austin and Texas. Um, and I think that's the case kind of across the board in across industry. So if I were a LeBron James, if I were, and by the way, LeBron is going to make a hell of a lot more money in his career than Magic ever did. And I mean, by like a factor of what, 10x, 15x, 20x, um, you know, so to me, if you took somebody like a LeBron, and by the way, not just LeBron, I don't want to pick on LeBron, but LeBron plus all of his brethren, plus all these MLB guys, plus all these NFL guys or whatever, if you really took them and said, let's invest, yes, money, but let's also invest in startup communities, right? Let's look exactly. there. There are some young men and women out there in black communities who have great ideas for businesses and they just don't have one, the capital, the financial capital, nor the mentorship. They don't have somebody to really help them understand like, how do I get from idea to execution? 
And we've seen that from like venture capital firms and things like that who have really invested in female owned businesses or black owned businesses or things like that. But I think if you could really partner some of those sort of venture capital firms with the LeBron James of the world, you see how that exponentially increases, right? So, you know, when you add LeBron's name to it, then it all of a sudden immediately becomes this huge thing. It's no different than Mark Cuban being on Shark Tank, right? So, you know, I'd love to see some of these guys really view the world through that lens and how can we invest, not just invest our own money, but also our, our time, our energy, our, our whatever all those resources are, our connections to other people to be able to say, how do we, how do we get these young black kids to know that there is a spot for them to create their own businesses and to be well-funded and to be able to live out their own dreams off the court as well, right? Which I think um, leads me into, hopefully, Zach, you said what you wanted to say, but like that oh, yeah. leads me into this kind of really tough week of losing uh, both John Thompson and Chadwick Boseman. Icons. And- icons and Chadwick Boseman where I was going with that was you know these these young kids who get to see somebody like LeBron well they also got to see Chadwick Boseman the king Wakanda forever you know the first superhero who was portrayed who was a black man and was actually has nothing to do with his race but that was actually my favorite film of all of the MCU and I've seen all of them um, I just, you know, losing him so young um, and having young, young black boys and black girls be able to see him as a superhero, I think is, it could be life-changing, right? And I think, I think bringing that back to sports, you know, LeBron and those guys have that same opportunity to do that off the court as well and be seen as legitimate heroes, right? Athletes are not heroes. They're just not. What they do off the court makes them heroic, and I, I would love to just see more of that um, in in communities of color. I just really would. And I think really Chadwick Boseman's incredible talent on the screen in terms of portraying icons in American history. Jackie Robinson, the first African-American player in Major League Baseball, broke the color barrier with the Brooklyn Dodgers in April of 1947. Matt, that's not all that long ago. No. no, no. 1947. 1947 was four years before my dad was born. Yeah, two okay. years two years before my mom, three years before my dad. Yep. Sure. Jackie Robinson, it is unbelievable what he endured. And I really encourage our listeners to go out and read an article by baseball historian John Thorne about how Jackie Robinson apparently was not going to be the only black player to integrate the game. There were a couple of other players that were going to come up with him, but it ended up not working out. I don't want to spoil the article, but it was Jackie's, it was Jackie's torch to bear, right? And what Jackie endured was unbelievable. I mean, you had Jackie trying to turn a double play at second base, and you had guys literally coming in with their spikes up trying to hurt him. And I went to the Reds Hall of Fame. I live in Cincinnati. Shortly after I moved here, because number one, I love baseball. Number two, I love museums. Number three, they're Hall of Fame is incredible. And there was a Jackie Robinson exhibit in 2007, I believe to commemorate uh, the 60th anniversary of him integrating the game. And there was a letter written to him. I don't know if it was delivered to the hotel or to Crosley Field where the Reds used to play. And it was some racist mail about how people are going to 
go and throw him in the river and just what he endured and how Chadwick Boseman really made just the, the aura of Jackie Robinson come to life on the big screen, I thought was inspiring. And it's not limited to baseball. It's uh, Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. And then uh, with James Brown, he, he, he's incredible, incredible talent. Yeah. And, you know, 42, I, I think I've seen all the baseball movies, like all of them, even the really, really terrible ones. And, um, you know, our, our son and I, you know, watched that. And 42 in particular, our daughter too. And it just, it, it's one of those films that, um, you know, is it the greatest movie ever? No, but it tells the story of Jackie really well. And, you know, what it doesn't go into is sort of, you know, later in Jackie's life, right? So Jackie was, and, and a lot of people don't talk about this, he was still very angry at Major League Baseball um, to the day he died because he wanted to be a manager. And he was never given that opportunity. He, he wanted to be a coach. He wanted to be a manager. He wanted to continue that legacy. And he was never given the opportunity. And he knew that doors still, even, even after being Jackie Robinson, right, he still wasn't offered opportunities when, and I think we probably have a hard time getting our brain around that, right? Like, how could Jackie Robinson not be, ele- well, he wasn't. Right. I mean, this is still the, you know, 1960s and um, and he died young, uh, which which didn't help. You know, maybe if he had if he had, you know, lived longer then you know, maybe those opportunities would have presented themselves. But, you know, his fight was all the way to the end. And, um, you know, I think I think Chadwick Boseman, maybe uh, maybe there's a neat parallel there. His fight was also to the end. He did it quietly with none of us knowing, right? Like we just, we didn't know. And I think that's maybe why this news is so shocking is that he continued to make this, these amazing films, this amazing um, sort of, uh, he kept picking these roles or, or kept being offered these roles even that just allowed him to sing and I think really speak for the black community in America. And I think that all of these films, I, I, I get frustrated sometimes, again, middle-aged white man perspective, but like I get frustrated sometimes with, you know, with, with, with whatever we decide like, oh, well, this is a film for black people and this is a film for not black people or whatever. What? Like, how's that a thing? And I think Chadwick Boseman did a great job of transcending that right like um of of it never he never made a film that i think anyone looked at and said you know that's that's a that's a that's a black people movie and i'm glad right i mean i i think that 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 transcendental kind of idea i think is something to be celebrated and we're we're gonna miss him i wish that i wish he had many many more years to continue making making movies like that we're also going to miss the larger-than-life personality of John Thompson, who coached at Georgetown starting in the fall of 1972. Matt, you want to talk about just an icon in college basketball. He took Georgetown and, and spoke publicly about this. The athletic director at the time was saying things like, why don't you just take us to the NIT every now and again? And, of course, John Thompson was on the sidelines. He had that trademark towel slung across his right shoulder. And I think one of the more underappreciated dynamics in sports was the creation of the Big East Conference in the late 70s and early 80s. Because you had schools like Syracuse, Connecticut, Boston College, Pittsburgh that were 
they were kind of, they were spread out. You know, there was no real unifying fabric until real visionary leaders came along like Dave Gavitt and really, really good coaches came along like Jim Beheim and John Thompson and the great fraternity of folks that led the Big East into national prominence. And I, I think another real telling thing that made John Thompson John Thompson was he was not afraid to speak his mind. He was not afraid to walk off the court. And he was not afraid to draw issues out of frustration into the limelight that he thought were unfair to African-American student athletes. Yeah. And he, and he saved Allen Iverson's life. Right. And I will never forget, you know, Allen Iverson's speech. Um, was it to the hall of fame? Yeah. When he was inducted. Is that right? Um, is that right? Do I have that? I'm right? not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. But he spoke publicly at one he point. He spoke publicly at one point about, and just in tears, right, of, you know, this is a kid who was coming out of, you know, essentially a gang life, right? And he, he had two choices. He was either going to fall into the depths of that, of that, or he was going to become a Hall of Famer in the NBA. And it, and if, it, and he talks a lot about if it weren't for John Thompson, that's not, I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be where he, where he is. Right. And, and it's easy to talk about it as Allen Iverson because we know him. He's, but imagine the number of kids that John Thompson did that for that we really barely ever knew. Right. I mean, we knew them for four years in college. They might've been the 12th man on the end of the bench, but he, he had this way of tough love of um, finding diamonds where maybe other people only saw rough um, and I just think that, and, and, and again, like he just spoke up. Right. And, and I think kids, regardless of race, I think kids, he just was one of those people that you were just drawn to him. Right. And, uh, he was charismatic, also difficult and hard on them, but in the most loving way possible. And I, I've talked a lot about coaches and love and that word and he always came off to me as being able to really toe that line of you know tough love and actual love um but every single time you always knew he was he was going to be there for you and um we've heard that time and time again from the kids he coached from parents you know who entrusted him with their kids going off to college for the first time and oh yeah by the way he was a pretty damn good basketball coach too and a good player yeah, 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 absolutely. So one thing that really sticks out to me about John Thompson are just the, the, the fraternity of people who just uh, swear by him, you know, for the reasons that you mentioned, Matt. I'm talking Alonzo Mourning, Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo. Great players, but if you take a look at also what Dikembe Mutombo is doing in retirement with his healthcare work in Africa and building hospitals for people, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And these, these men were shaped in part and no small part, obviously by John Thompson. Yeah. Matt, I say we get to the great Riley McGinnis first captain at West point, inspiring young woman. You're going to really, really enjoy getting to know her here on the victory away from the venue podcast. It is awesome today to have a very distinguished guest joining us from the United States military Academy at West point. She is a first captain, the highest rank in the Corps of Cadets, Riley McGinnis. Cadet McGinnis, it is great to have you on the program, the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I was really looking forward to this today. Well, I tell you what, you're a perfect guest for us because what we like to do on our podcast is explore the successes that athletes enjoy away from the playing surface. And 
if I understand correctly, you were kind of introduced to West Point and the military academy through soccer. What's What was that story? Yes, sir. So during my sophomore year of high school, I was at a college recruiting clinic that my high school club coach had organized. And it was right around the Philadelphia area, and there were a bunch of different college coaches there. And at the end of the clinic, my coach came up to me and said, hey, Riley, the Army coach is interested in you. And I just remember thinking, the what coach is interested in me? And for the first time, I learned about what West Point was and what kinds of opportunities West Point had to offer. But still, I'm not from a military family. I had no idea of what West Point was and what kind of opportunities it had. So I just remember thinking, yeah, right, Riley in the military, that's funny. Um, But I eventually went on a visit, an overnight visit, got to live in the life of a cadet. I got to go to a soccer camp. But really what sold me was that overnight visit with living in the life of a cadet where I got to see what West Point was and what opportunities it held both on the field, but also off the field and the opportunities that I would have being a West Point graduate that I absolutely fell in love with it. What was that overnight visit like? What did you get to experience? What did you get to see? Who did you get to meet where you're like, this is the place for me? So I got to stay with a cadet who was sponsoring me for that weekend. So I got to do everything that she did from waking up and doing the, the normal morning cadet duties that they have to do, whether it's taking out the trash or getting ready for the day. Um, and then also going to the mess hall, which is the big place that all of the cadets go at one time to eat. And it's this super unique environment, but that was so much fun. And then also getting to go to their classes with them. And West Point's so unique in how they run their academics. It's about, the classes are about 12 to maybe 18 people, and that's it. So you really get that individual attention. And the instructors, I was blown away with how much they cared about each and every individual person. And they would just sit there and and talk to me, who was just a random high school student, and just, I could just tell they genuinely cared. And that interaction and that mentorship is something that has continued to this day, um, and is so, so special about West Point. And what is a, what is a day in the life of a cadet really like, right? I think we all hear about West Point, and we hear about you know, and I think we maybe have a vision of what that is, but until you you walk that walk, my guess is, is e- even overnight, you know, you, you probably just got a little glimpse of that. What is a day in the life really, really like? And how is a high school student, you know, sort of ready for that environment? Funny, Zach and I, before you hopped on, were chatting about, I don't know if I was mature enough to go to West Point when I was 18. And, and maybe the question is, is, is anybody really mature enough or does it mature you? And, and what does that sort of look like? I would definitely say it's a little bit of both, more so that West Point matures you. We all come in, we're all high school students. Some people are prior enlisted, so they have a little more experience, a little more discipline. However, a lot of us are about 18 years old and West Point really teaches you how to be an adult and how to grow up quickly because you just have so many responsibilities that you have to be accountable for not just yourself, but also for your subordinates when you get these leadership positions. So um, I would definitely 
say the average day is different, much different than your typical college experience. And prior to the COVID environment, things are changing now, but the typical day in the life of a cadet is that you, you wake up in the morning. I typically would wake up around 5.45 um, and then get ready for the morning, go to breakfast and sit with my friends and my company mates at breakfast. And then you go to classes starting at 7.30. So you, it's kind of like high school. You'll have passing periods, things like that, until you get to your lunch formation. So before, at breakfast, at lunch, and at dinner, you have accountability formations like they do in the Army. Um, and that's usually before some sort of mandatory meal so you can all go in as a core. Um, so we have that. And then right after lunch, there's usually what's called commandant's hour training. And it's some sort of either military class or character development course or exercise that you get to work through to better prepare you to be an officer and a leader of character when you graduate. And then in the afternoon, you'll have a couple more classes depending on your class schedule. And then around 16.30 to 18.30, that's time reserved for athletics. So whether you're on a, a division one team or you're on a club sport or company athletics, regardless of what level athletics you're involved in, every cadet is looked at as an athlete. So they'll participate in some sort of sport on some sort of team to get that experience being in a team environment. And then after that, we have dinner. And at night, it's evening study period. So it's time to, to get prepping for the next day of class. Not too many college students wake up at 5.45 in the morning. So, so that's where you lost me. <laughs> that would have been the end of my West Point career right there. <laughs> So Riley, you have the distinction of earning the rank of first captain in the Corps of Cadets. And West Point first admitted a class of women in 1976. You're the sixth woman to hold that distinction. What is a first captain? How did you get nominated or apply for that distinction? And what are your responsibilities? And first of all, before you answer, congratulations to you. That's just exceptional. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, it was definitely very, very humbling. Um, I, being the first captain, you are responsible for being the top cadet in the cadet chain of command at West Point. So I'm responsible for the roughly 4,400 cadets that fall under me. Um, and, and ultimately, I am an advocate for them, but also instead of just working down and in with the cadets, also that liaison working up and out, linking the cadets to the senior officers, to the faculty, and to outside West Point organizations. So it's been an incredible opportunity getting to meet and speak with some other individuals, getting to be mentored by other officers, and gaining a greater perspective as to what all goes into making West Point the institution that it is. Um, so that has been great. And as far as the selection process goes, there is something that is called key summer leadership. So you can go through the series of interviews and evaluations in your junior year. We call it our cow year. And you get interviewed at the company level and then you just work your way up the regiment and then eventually up to brigade. 
And those are all interviews where they, they look at not only your performance physically, academically, and militarily, they also get letters of recommendation from your classmates, from officers, and then that person-to-person -person interaction that you have in that interview is a very important part. So based on how you perform in those interviews and how your file looks, they select students to hold key summer positions. So in the summers, we have lots of summer training, different details, whether it's in the field or at West Point, things like that. And based on then how you lead in the summer, they then assign the academic year positions, such as first captain or a regimental commander and things like that. So at the end of my summer detail, um, I was told by the commandant that I was selected to be first captain. And it was, it was very exciting, very humbling. Um, and it's just been an amazing journey so far. So if I'm a cadet at West Point, say I'm in my first year or my second year, what kind of things can you help me with, support me in doing as first captain? And, and what can I count on you in terms of not only, like you said, reaching down in rank, but also reaching up and out in the chain of command at the military academy? So one thing that is crucial to allowing West Point and the Army as a whole to operate successfully is the chain of command. So typically, the higher you go up in the chain of command, the less direct interaction and direct influence that you have with those lower, uh, those lower people on the chain of command. However, being first captain or being any position that is higher up in the chain of command, it gives you incredible influence that, and one big thing for me is I don't wanna just be a face to people. I don't just wanna be the person who is the first captain. I want to be able to go to the freshmen and the sophomores or what we call them the plebes and yucks and show, be present in their lives. We have this thing we like to call 10 minutes of presence. So taking 10 minutes out of your day every day and just investing it into other people. So I'll be walking around barracks or maybe sit with a, a plebe at lunch and just talk to them and get to know them and ask where they are or where they're from or what's going on or what's on their mind to show that, hey, we as the leadership of West Point care about you and we care about what you have to say. So it's been a great platform to be able to use that as a way to reach out to other kids and to help them through maybe some tough times um, and to also be some sort of uh, a role model to them. It's, it's definitely been an honor. So I'm, I'm curious, Riley. So uh, we're in the week where we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, the women's suffrage movement where women got the right to vote. Um, you are the sixth female first captain. And I'm curious, so from an outsider's perspective, that seems like a huge deal. Do you view it as a huge deal or do you just want to be seen as a first captain and the fact that you happen to be a woman in the army doesn't matter or is it that important to, to keep being, you know, having all those women who've come before you to keep breaking that glass ceiling? Yes. So it's definitely when you, when you hear those statistics being the sixth female first captain, that, 
that's amazing uh, to be able to be a part of that short but growing line that we've started to establish. Um, however, I've never, I've never looked at it as a limiting factor, me being a female at all. And I think West Point does an incredible job of encouraging females to, to thrive and to be the same kind of leader that a man would. Um, and I've never felt that it's held me back in any way. And I think a lot of that is due to the incredible people to my left and my right. I always say, like, I feel like I have 40 brothers in my company. Um, and that's something I grew up with two sisters. That's it. So that's been a super great thing that West Point has blessed me with. Um, and they would do absolutely anything for me. And they're so proud whenever I do something um, that helps to break that glass ceiling. So it has a great environment for women and having this opportunity to lead in this position helps me even more to show, especially the girls back home, that, hey, a girl who came from Emmaus, Pennsylvania, had no idea what the military academy was, never in a million years thought she would end up there, just wanted to play soccer at a division one school um, and go to college, probably sports science person, I don't know. Um, but that person was able to not only get into West Point and do well, but also turn it into a crazy leadership opportunity um, that would greatly impact my future to follow. So that first day of your time at West Point, Riley, like three years ago now, tell me what the feelings were like when you say goodbye to your family. You have like, I think, 60 seconds to say goodbye to your family. How proud were they? How beaming with, with joy were they for this, this journey you were about to go on? And then what is that like, that first summer of training where you're just out of high school and you're learning how to do uh, you know, combat exercises and, and fire a gun and, and those kinds of things that are, that are critical to being a successful military person? Yeah, so I told my parents before I got, because everybody sees the videos of the 60, 60 seconds goodbye. You see what's called R day, which is reception day, your first day there. So I, I kind of knew what to expect. But when I went into the auditorium and you sit down, you're with your family, I just knew that I was just waiting for someone to say, all right, 60 seconds to say goodbye. And I knew I'd walk through that door and that would be, that would be it and the, it would start going. Um, but I told my parents, you are not allowed, I told my mom, you're not allowed to cry. <laughs> and so they said 60 seconds and I hugged my mom, I hugged my dad and I just like took off through the door because I didn't want, I didn't want to get emotional and I didn't want to look at them being emotional. So I probably took about 15 of those 60 seconds. Which I don't think my mom was very happy about, but um, I was just ready. I was just ready to get the summer going and to start this new experience and to see what it was all about. And then throughout that first summer, and even to this day, I just think all the time, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I... I'm shooting an M4. I can't believe I just went through a gas chamber. I can't believe I just did an indoor obstacle course and all of these things. Um, and then I can't believe I am the first captain at West Point. I still can't. Um, but I think that's so great 
about West Point is that you constantly get put in these situations that you never ever expected you would be in, but you get put in it and it's your job to step up, to own that role, to own that situation and to, to show that you are capable of leading through and accomplishing whatever is put in place of you or in front of you. I firmly believe and, and Matt, I don't know if you feel the same way, Riley, if you feel the same way, that there are circumstances in our lives that really test us. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's spiritually, maybe emotionally, mentally, whatever, to really see how badly you truly want something. Is there a, a training exercise, Riley, at West Point that was really hard, that, that stands out, that you were really able to rise to the occasion, maybe overcome a fear, a fear of heights? I'm just throwing out you know, possibilities where you're like, you know what? I don't know two years ago if I could have done this, but I did it today and I rose to the challenge and now I'm continuing to grow along this path because of it. Yeah, I think there, there's so many, like there's so many different. It sounds like it. Um, there, there's just one, for example, there's an indoor obstacle course test, the IOCT that's at West Point. And you could look it up, you could see these videos, but you're starting your freshman year, your plebe year, you have to do this, this whole course. And it's, you start off low crawling, then you got to go through some tires and you got to jump over a hurdle. And then there's what's called a shelf. So you have to jump up and, um, do get on this shelf. It's about eight or I think it's eight feet in the air and you have to basically pull yourself up and on top of a ledge by just jumping up there. And it, at first you're like, how do you even do that? But they teach you how to do it. And it, I just think it's so amazing when you watch people do this test. Um, then right after the shelf, you have to go across this skinny little pole um, about 12 feet in the air, jump down from it go across a balance beam through a tire over a wall monkey bars and then climb up a rope and then run around a track up top holding a medicine ball so it's all of these things that in high school i would think i don't know how to climb a rope or i don't know how to jump on top of a shelf and pull myself up but getting to look back and say hey i did that and not only did i do that but every single person who graduates from west point has successfully completed that course is so neat, is so neat. So that's definitely one of the things that I would say has been an incredible opportunity. So we wanna be respectful of your time. Riley is one of the probably busiest people on the planet. Um, so we won't keep you much longer, but I'm curious. So what, what's next for Riley McGinnis? So after, um, after you graduate from West Point, you owe a minimum of five years active duty in the Army. And how you serve depends on what branch you get selected to, to be a part of. So there's 17 different branches and being a firstie, you get to input your final branch preferences. So I have not yet submitted that. Um, I, I'm still, still learning a lot. We have branch week coming up. Um, I, my top two branch choices in no particular order are engineers and military intelligence. So I know wherever I end up, I will be happy and um, I'll definitely 
embrace whatever situation is in front of me, but you get to pick a branch and then you also get to put in preferences for a post. So there's posts all across the country. There's posts in Germany, in Italy, um, in Hawaii, so many different places you can go. Um, and then you find out towards the end of your first year about springtime. And then that's where I'll be headed. You go to uh, an officer train up course called Bullock. And then after you complete Bullock is when you get sent to your unit. And, and what, I'm just curious, what rank are you when you come out of West Point? I will commission as a second lieutenant. Okay. So an army officer. Okay. So Riley, I wanted to ask you this before we let you go. So you came to West Point as a division one soccer player and played three years. There was an injury and then, and then a choice you had to make. Can you kind of walk us through how, how difficult that is, but also how it takes a lot of mental toughness and mental resolve to listen to the doctors and make the best possible choice for you in your long-term future? Absolutely. So like I said, I came to West Point as a recruited soccer player. I didn't pick West Point because I wanted to be on the soccer team. I think this is, that's, a, that's a crazy decision for someone just to come here for a sport because there's so much attached to being a West Point graduate as far as the service obligation and all the demands as a cadet in general. But um, I came because I fell in love with the school and I became passionate about service and leadership, both on the field and off. Um, and I played soccer. I was a member of the team all the way up until last year. Um, I suffered a pretty bad injury in my right shin that resulted in some short-term nerve damage that I was dealing with. And it, it ended up um, taking about a year to get under control. But once I started to do a return to play, it constantly felt like doing damage control. So I would play in a game and then just spend the next week getting healthy enough to play in the next game. And it was just hard for me to allow myself the time I needed to heal in order to not just be healthy. I didn't just want to be healthy enough. I wanted to be healthy and also be able to progress physically um, and even mentally to be best prepared to lead soldiers in the future. Because ultimately that's at the end of my four years here at West Point, I'm going to be an army officer and I'm not going to be a soccer player anymore. So I had to come to a very tough decision. Had to, I talked to my doctor, my coaches, my teammates, my family, friends. Um, but ultimately, I made the decision to allow myself the, the freedom and the space to heal away from the soccer team. So I'm not playing in this last year. Um, and honestly, it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make because I've been a soccer player since I was three years old. And it's been a passion of mine for tw almost 20 years. And having to give that up felt like I was giving away a part of myself. But the skills that I've learned through soccer and the leadership attributes that that sport has taught me and the skills I learned about being a teammate, being a leader, everything like that has set me up to be the leader that the army expects me to be. Um, and it's been a blessing in disguise. So had I not had this injury and had to step away from the team, I wouldn't be in this position that I am now. Uh, ultimately, they, uh, an athlete, a division one athlete wouldn't have 
the time necessary for this position specifically to hold. Um, so I wouldn't be the first captain right now had that not happened. So in a way, it's been a blessing in disguise. Um, just teaching me that resiliency is key, but when something is taken away from you, you just really need to make the most of that experience and what you've learned from it and to think, how can I come out better from this? Well, Riley, we're going to let you go. We know you have to run off uh, to your next thing. Um, it has been an honor. I think I can speak for Zach as well. It's been an honor to, to talk with you. And I know we will enjoy listening to this audio when sometime in the future, we'll be calling you General McGinnis or uh, <laughs> Senator McGinnis or President, President McGinnis, McGinnis or Congresswoman McGinnis or, or whatever the case may be. You are uh, an incredibly impressive uh, young woman. Um, and we thank you so much for taking the time. First Captain Riley McGinnis, everyone, thank you. Thank you so much. That was an A-plus appearance from Cadet Riley McGinnis from the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, the sixth ever first captain, uh, female first captain at West Point. Matt, I could have talked to her for three hours. I could have. I, I was just saying, I, I think we could, uh, it's probably a good thing she had a hard stop to get to her next um, her next meeting. Uh, otherwise, we would have taken up her, her entire day, I'm pretty sure. I am just speaking as a parent. I don't know if I could be any more proud. I'll be proud of my kids, whatever they do and whatever they pursue as, as long as they're, they're great people, great teammates, great, great leaders, put their heart and soul into whatever passions they have. I just can't imagine as a parent, the pride that you experience when you are turning your children over to one of the elite leadership academies in the world to get some of the best training on the globe to serve us with such distinction. I mean, this is a place where Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, finished first in his class. Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, was a distinguished graduate. And the lineage is incredible. Dwight Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur. You just go on and on, and, and it's just humbling to learn more about it and to kind of have her paint a picture in your mind of just the demands that are, that are put on the cadets on a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I don't think anyone comes out of West Point and hasn't grown exponentially as a human being. Everybody grows a lot as a college student, but the perseverance, the difficulty, the, you know, everything that it takes to get through those four years at West Point, you know, you, you go in a, a child and you come out a full, full grown adult. And, um, you know, and I guess that that's the trade-off, right? You know, that, uh, you know, you and I went to college together and we had a great time and we, you know, doing things that you probably don't get to do at a place like West Point, but you also come out, you know, in a different, different spot in your life. And, you know, I'll, I'll be very curious to see, you know, where, where Riley ends up, right? I mean, it's only one person every year who becomes first captain, which means they are set up for success, in a million different ways, however you want to define that um, when she comes out of it. And I know that she's going to have her, her choice of gigs here a little bit and, you know, we'll just see her grow and I'll, I'll be super curious. I, I wasn't kidding when I ended it with, you know, at some point, you know, you and I are going to be listening back on this podcast when we're old crotchety men, you know, 20 or 30 years from now. And we're going to go, are we old crotchety men right now? I mean, maybe so, maybe so. And we're going to say, remember, 
Senator McGinnis when we got to interview her when she was still at West Point or whatever the case may be. And, uh, you know, we wish nothing but the best for Riley and her family. And she's recently engaged. So her almost husband, um, you know, they're, they're going to be very, very, very well set up for a very long time. Impressive, impressive young lady. And, you know, what? one thing that really struck me was just the, the demands that are put on the cadets on a daily basis. And I don't know, it starts at, starts at, you know, 5.45 in the morning and then it goes through formation and then it goes through breakfast and, and class and yeah. professorships and all that kind of thing. And it, it's just phenomenal. And, you know, I just, I have such a, a spot in my heart for uh, the military. I, three of my four grandparents were in the military in World War II. And, you know, when you think about just some of the defining moments of our time, you know, before our time, but of our time meaning you know, the 20th century and the battle of D-Day and turning away Nazism on the shores of of the Western part of France. Dwight Eisenhower learned those skills at West Point. Yeah. And, and and it's incredible. And it's it's humbling. It's incredible. And it's, it's. Yeah. And choosing that for your life, right. You know, that's, uh, and basically you're choosing that for your life at the age of 18, which, um, you know, a ton of people do, right. Who just enlist, in the military. And frankly, that's not something I would have done. That's not something I was willing to do. And, you know, somebody like Cadet McGinnis was in not even somebody who was, who came from a military background who, you know, I mean, she, she went cause she wanted to play division one soccer and it only took one night, you know, at West Point for her to really decide, you know, this is a place I can thrive and man, is she thriving. It's awesome. Matt, appreciate it. Cadet McGinnis, we appreciate it. And we also want to say thank you to the great people at the United States Military Academy for helping us be connected to Cadet McGinnis and coordinating some time on her schedule. Absolutely. uh, You you all know who you are, and we're very, very appreciative for, for connecting us. We thank you so much for listening. And this has been the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Check it out. Give us a subscribe. Give us a like. And give us a shot. We really appreciate you listening. Take care.